Hey, good morning, Bridgeway. Good to see everyone. We have a lot to get into, so let's take out our handout sheet that was given to us at the front door. Uh, we are going to have the scriptures on the screens today because we will be combining Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Uh, we are in part 42 of our Being Jesus series, and I entitled this morning's message, Radical Discipleship. I want to say hi to everyone on-site Rockland, also watching online. Hi to all of you. Uh, and we're ready to get into this. Let me just share a couple thoughts and I'll get you to, to fill in the blank. Uh, the message I'm about to bring to you is a challenge message. Jesus, once again, is thinning the herd. A lot of people want to follow him. A lot of people are around him. And he keeps saying things that are offensive to find out why someone wants to follow him and whether or not it's legit or not. However, uh, I, I need to explain a few things because there are some of us in here that are sensitive that we always think that God wants us to do more stuff. And what I need to clarify for you is I'm going to be talking about the cost of discipleship today. I'm going to talk about that it, it, it's a high level issue that Jesus said, if you're going to follow me, that means certain things. Now, here's where I don't want it to get mixed up because this has caused a lot of challenge in churches for uh, millennia is the idea that we, we argue out and we go, okay, so Jesus says, come to me, you who are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. He says, come as you are and I'll rescue you. He said, if you're broken, then I'm the one for you. I'm a savior. I rescue. I grab. And last time we were together, we literally had time to engage with God and say, rescue me. I'm broken. All of a sudden you come back to church and I start talking about, hey, by the way, the following Jesus is super hard. Now, that's where you start going, wait, 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 that's a bait and switch, man. I mean, you, you started out with this whole idea of all I had to do was be broken. I'm in there. But now you're talking about there's a whole bunch that gets entailed with it. So it's, that's so hard to understand for some that it's caused a big debate on whether or not you can be saved and not be a disciple because misreading what Jesus is asking of us. So I want to be very clear up front that when I start talking about the high cost of discipleship, Jesus would never ask you to do something he has not paved the way for you to do. That Jesus has already set you up for success. And as a matter of fact, not only does he not want you to do more, he's actually asking you to release more. He's actually asking you to simplify more. He's actually saying, get your hands off your life and let me do what I do. So what I do not want you to hear is I have to perform more for God. That's very important because he loves you regardless of your performance. And I need to be crystal clear on that piece. So when I look at this, we explained last week that Jesus is not interested in a mere remodel of your life or an add-on to your life, but absolute revolution. That means total overhaul. That means shift all of agendas, priorities, everything. Jesus wants all of you. And he wants to rescue you. And you say, okay, so you're saying it's a free gift, so why does it cost so much? Because let me give you the fill in the blank that's on the sheet in front of you. Here's the reality. Following Jesus costs everything. Following Jesus costs everything. If it's a free gift, how can it cost everything? Here's the answer. 
how hard is it to surrender? Now, that's all going to depend on what you're hanging on to, right? So if you are at the bottom of the barrel, if you are at the end of your rope, if you are at rock bottom, you got nothing to lose and you're like, didn't cost me a thing. Let's go. I'm ready. However, if you are wealthy in this world in all the other ways, which a lot of us are, where you're tied to this world a lot more, surrender costs a whole bunch and you'll find all sorts of resistance coming up. For example, let's say you have baked into you a love for people to where you are absolutely find your identity in relationships and Jesus says, let it go. That's going to be a problem for you. If you're putting things before God and he keeps saying, move that out of the way, move that out of the way, move that out of the way, then it feels like you're always working on stuff. But he didn't put it in the way. We put it in the way. And if we, and that's what I meant by wealthy in this world. I'm not talking about finance uh, necessarily. I'm talking about, do you have a bunch of stuff you love about this world that when Jesus says, I want you to love me more than the world, you got a problem with that. That is going to be a high cost for you. But Jesus said, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Meaning if you would just let go of everything, you could just be who I've designed you to be. When you keep jamming stuff in there and filling your life with stuff you think is important, man, this is really going to be hard for you. So is it difficult or easy? I don't know. It depends on our resistance, right? The Bible says the greatest commandment is love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And the second is love your neighbor as yourself. That means you cannot do the second until you do the first. So our relationship with God is always primary in everything. And that's what Jesus is about to talk about with us today. So... Uh, I'm going to throw up the scripture on the screen, but I just want to say one last piece before we move forward. And that comes from the great epic Dances with the Wolves. Yeah. Anybody ever see Dances with the Wolves? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Do you remember when Kevin Costner was super different than all his other roles? Oh, wait, no, he wasn't. He's the exact same guy in every role. Okay. Anyway, so he was that guy. And, and he was talking with the Native Americans, and this is when they're all in the thing, and he was doing the Tatonka. You guys remember that? When he was talking about the buffalo? Anyway, it's not important. In there, he, they would always, he was trying to talk about trade, and then the, the, he was waiting for the Indian chief to go, hmm, good trade. And they would do this, good trade. Okay, here's what I'm going to share with you. Anything you ever give up for Jesus, hmm, good trade. <laughs> You will get way more in return. I mean, you're giving up temporal for the eternal. You're giving up, you know, the basic for the infinite. Uh, and so any time that you give up for God, it's always, and you must say it in this language and in this tone of voice, hmm, good trade. Okay? All right, good. Here we go. The last time we were together, Peter said that Jesus was the Messiah. And he said it like as if it was for the whole group. Like, hey, Jesus, let me just tell you how we all feel. We know you are the one with the words of eternal life. We've come to find that out. And at that moment, the disciples were largely convinced. We know that Judas Iscariot was not. However, the majority of the guys, they were like, yeah, I'm all in. I've learned this from you. You are the Messiah. 
That's where our story begins. It says this. Then he strictly charged and commanded the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. Meaning you now figured it out, at least for now. And if you weren't so flaky, you'd hang on to this. But right now, you guys are all convinced. I don't want you telling anyone because everyone has an idea on what kind of Messiah I should be. And if we go public now, they're all going to freak out and do a bunch of different stuff. And it's going to kind of wreck our plans. So everybody keep a lid on it for now. And he said, and from that time, Jesus began to teach his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things, saying, the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes. That is the religious Jewish hierarchy known as the Sanhedrin, the high council, meaning all the big dogs of the Jewish world. Jesus is going to be handed over to them and he will be rejected and be killed. And after three days on the third day be raised, he will rise again. And he said this plainly as well as to tell, have them tell this to no one. In other words, guys, there's two secrets we have. The first secret is I'm the Messiah. Second secret is that I'm going to go to die. Because if you tell people I'm going to go die and they want me to be a political leader, they'll try to run in and lead a political revolution and fight for me. I don't need anyone to fight for me. I got this one. So let's explain a couple things. I'm going to be jamming together all the times that Jesus predicted his death and resurrection. He actually did it at least four times. I'm going to talk about all the, all three of the major ones in one shot. And the problem with doing a combo account like this is it makes it sound like Jesus was absolutely clear on everything and the disciples should have just got it. He actually kept telling them, over and over during a period over a year. So they would have to keep reflecting back on, wait, didn't he mention this before? Didn't he mention this before? And they kept, it kept sliding out of them. They had a hard time hanging on to the truth and they didn't want to know the truth. So that's the danger of the combo accounts. All right. But the other thing that we have to explain is he said, the son of man must suffer many things. That's Jesus's favorite title for himself. Why? I want to camp on that just for a second because I think it's very important. According to the NIV commentary, son of man is used 81 times in the gospels. That means it's really important. Jesus always referred to himself in this way. And and as Western thinkers, it's kind of irritating. You wish you would just say son of God and we could move forward. Why don't you just be clearer on who you are? Why are you using this cryptic term son of man? Because what does son of man actually mean? You ready for this? You might want to write this one down. Son of man actually means dude. All right. Here's what I mean. It means guy. That's all it really means. It means male human person. That's, that's all it means. It's not, it's not a, you know, where you would kind of go, wow, is that like some deep? Well, it does get deep, but it does just mean guy or dude because When God talks to some of his prophets, he'll say, son of man, write this down, son of man, write this down. And it means your dad was a dude. You are a dude. That's why you're a son of a man, right? That's all it means. And so you go, why would Jesus use that term? Because that's like a very basic, normal term. I think that's the point. I think that Jesus, when he took on humanity to his deity, He wanted to identify with us to such a degree that he took that term to say, I'm with you. 
I'm one of you. I am your representative. When I die for you, I'm dying for the sins of the world. I'm dying for your sins. We are in this together. I am your sacrifice, right? I mean, that's, that's what I think was so powerful about this. He did not come to be served, but to serve. He came, it says, and put a towel over his arm and began to serve his disciples and his people. So I think Jesus loves the humility of the term son of man. However, it is also loaded. And here's why. Y'all remember the story or any of the book of Daniel. Daniel was the guy with the Daniel in the lion's den and he had buddies that were the Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego and the fiery furnace. If you remember any of that stuff, Daniel saw visions and he saw a vision in Daniel chapter seven, verse 13. I'm just going to read it. And this is what Jesus is hoping the Jews will pick up on whenever he uses this term. This is what the vision says. And Daniel said, I saw in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. Okay, now let's pause right there. Here's all he's saying. And I'm seeing this heavenly stuff where there's like angelic beings and there's God on the throne and there's all this drama, there's angels and in walks a dude. And he's like, what are you doing here? Like, you're kind of normal. You're kind of average. So why are you walking in here? And I saw one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. Now, the ancient of days is God the Father. So now a regular guy walks in before the Father. So Daniel's like, I wonder who this guy is. And then it says this, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, all nations and all languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away. And his kingdom is one that shall not be destroyed. Jesus said, yeah, I'm that guy. You know what I'm saying? Amen. And so that was a loaded term of going, do I look average? Do I look just like you? Have I taken on humanity? Am I here in humility? The answer is yes. However, I am here and I'm not merely a man. I am the son of man that the ancient of days gives all power and authority that at my name, the name of Jesus Christ, every knee will bow and every tongue confess, right? That was the idea. Jesus wanted that term loaded into their minds. Now, let me say one last thing. It says that the son of man must suffer. Why must he suffer? You go, well, that's prophecy. Okay, I get that. But there's really three main, at least three main reasons why Jesus had to die. The first one is love. The Bible says that greater love has no man than this to lay down his life. In other words, you don't have anything that's valuable except for your own life. If you were to lay that down for someone, that is the ultimate act of love. And so to demonstrate the incredible love of God, Jesus Christ, it says God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whosoever would believe in him would not perish but have eternal life. Yeah. The second reason that at least I'm writing down is atonement for sins. He had to be our sacrificial lamb and therefore he had to die, but we all realize God doesn't die. The Bible says without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins, but God doesn't bleed. So what did he need to do? Come here, take on humanity, 
Then he becomes the sacrificial lamb. Then he can bleed. Then he would die for our sins. The third main reason that I wrote down was the resurrection is a critical piece to explain the power of God. But you can't raise from the dead if you're not dead. There you go. All right. So why does the son of man have to die? Because he's communicating an awful lot of powerful truths right here. Okay, let's keep moving on. It says, and Peter, y'all know who he is, right? He's the loud mouth. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke Jesus saying, far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. Let's just stop right there. Is rebuking Jesus a good idea at any time? What in the world is he thinking? I mean, you go up to the son of God who you just said is the Messiah. And what a rebuke means is you need to do something different. You're screwing up here. Stop doing that. Uh Oh, would you really want to say that to Jesus? Is that a good idea? But turning and seeing his disciples, Jesus rebukes Peter and says, get behind me, Satan. Now, if Jesus calls you Satan, you're in trouble. Now, Satan in Hebrew means adversary. He's not saying that he's possessed by Satan. He's not saying that he is Satan. He's saying that you are acting as my adversary. Therefore, you're doing what Satan does with me. And he said, you are a hindrance. You are an obstacle. You are a problem to me right now. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Why did he look at his disciples before he rebuked Peter? One commentator said, uh, it was because it wasn't Peter that was the only one that was thinking this, but everybody was thinking this and Jesus was rebuking the whole group. I disagree. It's possible, but I disagree because it says Peter took him aside. In other words, they were supposed to have a private conversation. So why did he look at the disciples? Here's my opinion. My opinion is that he knows who Peter is and how influential Peter is in the group. And he's looking at Peter and looks over at the disciples like, hey, Peter, how about you look at what I'm looking at? You're sitting here trying to correct me in front of our men, and they're going to try to follow what you're thinking. Not only are you screwing up, but you're leading everyone else astray as well. Knock it off. I mean, I think this is a public rebuke and embarrassing to Peter. What did Peter do wrong? He played the role of the devil. How so? Do you remember when Jesus was sent into the desert and was fasting for 40 days and 40 nights? He was hungry and the Satan comes up to him and starts tempting him. If you're the son of God, which we know you are, he said, why don't you just shortcut the process, man? You have the power to make bread from rocks. Why wouldn't you just do that? Then he says, and how about throw yourself down, demonstrate your power. Your father's not going to let you hit the ground. Angels are going to sweep in. They're going to grab you. We know that whole thing. Why don't you just demonstrate your power? You know what? As a matter of fact, I have all the kingdoms of the world right here in my pocket. I'll give them all to you if you only bow down and worship me. We don't have to do the cross thing. You know as well as I do where you're headed. Therefore, I'm going to go ahead and say you can have a shortcut. He said, deviate your plan to make it easier for you. Y'all understand? That's the temptation of the devil. What was Peter doing? The exact same thing. Now, one of Jesus' best friends is operating as the devil. Hey, Jesus, this is ridiculous. Why are you even talking like this? You're killing morale. You don't know how to lead, obviously. 
I mean, you're out here and you're saying stuff like, I'm going to die. You can't die, man. I've seen you shut down the wind and the waves. I've seen you walk on water. I did it with you. No one's going to kill you. This is absurd of what you're talking about. And I don't know if you're trying to be cryptic and dramatic. All I'm telling you is this isn't the way to do it. Whoa, 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 what? Are you telling Jesus what to do? Have you ever been this way to your friends? Here's what I mean. God was doing something in their lives and he was bringing about change and he was bringing intention and you hijacked the entire process and said, you don't need to be going through that stress. Why don't you just do it this way? Is that what we're doing? Are we hijacking what the father's trying to do because we don't like the tension either? We don't want our friends to have any problems. We don't want to have any problems. And so we're always looking for a shortcut and how to get out of everything. I think we have, and I think we do it for ourselves as well as others. It picks it up here. They went on from there and they passed through Galilee. That's the Northern part of Israel. And all were astonished at the majesty of God. Remember, there's a whole bunch of people around and they're seeing stuff Jesus is doing and it's absolutely out of this world. It's casting demons, it's healing, it's radical miracles. And as they were gathering in Galilee, while they're all marveling at everything he was doing, meanwhile, on the side, Jesus was teaching his disciples and didn't want anyone else to know that he was saying to them, let these words sink into your ears. The son of man is about to be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill him. And when he is killed after three days, he will rise. He will be raised on the third day. But they didn't understand this saying and it was concealed from them. So they might not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask him about this saying and they were greatly distressed. Why didn't they want to ask him? Because the last guy that started hassling him got called Satan. So they're probably thinking, I got to mellow out. You know, you ask him. No, you ask him. No, you ask him. Right. I mean, there's a lot of that. They couldn't understand. Why couldn't they understand? Well, it says that God kind of closed their eyes, but, but how did it feel? Here's my suggestion. I don't think they could receive it. I don't think they emotionally could handle what he was saying. Why? If you've ever had loss of someone critical in your life, there's a certain amount of denial that has to go on. I want you to think about who Jesus is to these guys. They used to be one way. They used to be all about, hey, I'm a fisherman, I'm a tax collector, I do whatever, right? They had regular lives, and this guy walked up to them, and their whole life changed. They saw in him, in his eyes, the sweetest, most caring, most powerful. They saw their true identity in his eyes. Their whole life overhauled in a moment. He became their confidant, their best friend. They fell in love with him because he was everything they wanted to be. I mean, he was the one that was always serving, always giving, and he was always looking for who he could bless. They know he's the nicest guy in the world, but yet he's the most powerful guy in the world. And yet he's, he's kind of captured their heart and he keeps talking about dying. I don't think we deal with separation well, and I don't think that we can handle it. And I think that this emotionally was too much because what he said is I'm going away from you and you can't talk to me like you can right now. And I think that that hurt their hearts and I'm going, we can't handle this. I don't want to think about it. God, talk about something else, but he wouldn't, he kept bringing it up. So let me share something with you. Has God ever done this to you? He brings something in your mind and you're like, Lord, you better not mean that. And you start going la 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 la. And you're trying to think of something else. And when it goes away, you're like, finally, thank you, Lord. And then bloop, it pops back up again. 
and he won't let it go. I mean, whether that's a calling, right? Or whether that's to correct something or whether that's to root out a sin or whether or not that is, you know, to put a boundary in a relationship, whatever it is that's agitating, you know, Jesus is trying to bring change into your life and he won't let it go. Well, that's kind of hard to deal with. It's almost like you start praying for him to stop talking about it. Hmm. They were greatly distressed. Let's pick up the next one. Now, great crowds accompanied him and he turned and calling the crowd. Now, this is a mixture of people that wanted to follow him, people that were committed to following him, his 12 disciples. I mean, it's a big crowd. So he's going to thin the herd again. Now, great crowds accompanied him and he turned and calling the crowd to him with his disciples. He said to them, if anyone comes to me, like you want to be my disciple, like you want to be a Christian, like you want to follow after me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters. Yes, even his own life. He cannot be my disciple. Now, let's just stop right there. Let's say you only read Luke's version of that. Is that sound weird to you? It almost sounds like the antithesis of what God normally says. Because God is all about love, right? Love the Lord your God, love other people as yourself. Why is God starting to use a word like hate? That absolutely you would go, you know what, that's not, that's not godly. You sure? Thankfully, Matthew recorded his version of this, and that's what we read next. For whoever loves his father or mother more than me, is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. So how is that accurate? The phrase hate is a Hebrew idiom. It's a figure of speech. And it means love less, focused on less, gave less favor, gave less blessing. How do we know that? Not only from this, not only from historical studies, but there's a scripture in the Bible that God says in Malachi, Jacob I love, but Esau I hated. And you read that and you go, really? Those were twins. Those were little boys that come out of the womb. They're, they're, they're not identical twins. They're fraternal twins. One was a, like a little hairy red guy and the other one was like smooth guy. And one was a hunter and one was like a cook. You know what I mean? It was that kind of thing. Anyway, that's a whole different message. And these guys, did God really hate one of them where he's just like, ew, the hairy one? I mean, is that... Is that really the problem? I don't think that that's what God meant. I think, I, as a matter of fact, what you read is both of them were blessed beyond belief. They were so wealthy and they had so much lineage and they had such great kingdoms, they couldn't even live together because there was too much blessing. They had to separate out. Now Esau became the Edom Ites, right? So his name was became transferred to Edom. All his lineage became the Edomites. And you'll notice you don't hear about them the same way as you hear about the Israelites. So what God was saying is my favor went down the line of the Messiah, not with Esau. So in that way, my blessing went towards one boy and not towards the other, not in the same way. That phrase was hate. Okay. So what does this really mean? It means no relationship can eclipse your relationship with God. Let me get personal on you for a moment. In all the years that I've been doing ministry, which are many, I hear this phrase a lot. You know, I was really doing super good with Jesus and I got this girlfriend 
And then it's like I kind of fell away. Like I got, you know, her and I, we were all about each other. And then, you know, I just kind of lost time and lost attention. And I've just fallen away since then. And now I want to come back. Well, why do you want to come back? Well, we broke up. Oh, okay. Uh, you know what? I was doing awesome. Then I met this dude, this guy, you know, and he was, you know, he became kind of my everything and I got really wrapped up in him and I just kind of caved on all my Christian principles and I kind of just, you know what I'm talking about? All right. So it could be that. And then we all judge that as if that we would never have done that. Right. Which is garbage. You totally would have done that if you had the chance. Right. Okay. But check this one out. He said, even mothers and kids. What more pure relationship could there possibly be than a mother with their children? And here's what I hear normally. You know, in this season of life, I really just can't work on my relationship with God. I'm pretty much focused on the kids. Are you now? Well, you know what? The kids are really demanding. I don't really have any time to walk with God. I don't really have any time to pray. I don't really have any time to hang out with Jesus. And so I'm going to get to that as soon as the kids get older. Did you tell me that you just put your kids in front of God? Whoops. I didn't tell you you need to be involved in ministry. I didn't tell you that you needed to do anything outside the home. I didn't tell you anything about what more you needed to do other than your attention. Well, man, you're kind of stepping on some territory. I mean, my kids need me and I'm the only one for them. Listen to me. If you want your kids to be blessed, get a walk with Jesus. And if you focus on your walk with Jesus, then it will outflow into your children. You want a good marriage? Get your walk with Jesus right. And then it flows into your relationships. We got a lot of this stuff backwards. Yeah. Amen. We got a lot of this flip-flopped and I don't care whether it's your spouse that's magical to you or whoever it is that you get obsessed with. But if you are so locked in relationships that Jesus takes a back seat, we got a problem. I don't care what phase you are in life. Jesus is your number one. It says, and Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, meaning stop being about you and your agenda. You got to shut that stuff down. I know what you want. I know what you want. I know what you want. I need you to go ahead and cast that aside and look at what I want. Let him deny himself and take up his cross daily. That is a, a, an example or a word picture of when people would be crucified, they'd beat them up and then they'd make them carry their cross beam, which is the horizontal piece of the T. You know what I'm saying? There's a vertical and then there's a horizontal. They would carry the cross beam as a sign of shame. They would go to their other part of the T, then they would lay down and get nailed to that, and that's how they would die in crucifixion. They'd be lifted up from there. He said, I want you to carry the hardship that will be laid upon you by saying no to your flesh and yes to God. I want you to die to self every day and make me in charge. I want you to set aside your selfishness and be about the kingdom. He said, I want you to do that daily and follow me for whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me is not worthy of me and cannot be my disciple for whoever would save his life, meaning be about what I can gain in this life. And this life is everything. And I'm going to amass all my stuff and I'm going to get what I want. I'm going to get my relationship first and all that. Whoever would save that life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will find it and save it. Mm, good trade. <laughs> For what does it profit a man if he would gain the whole world and lose or forfeit his own soul? What can a man give in return for his soul? 
what is going to be worth the trade of a relationship with God if you are built for a relationship with God? Let's say you get your children healthy, successful, completely focused on, all in great schools, and successful and move out, and yet you mark out a 20-year period where you didn't walk with Jesus. Was that a good trade? No, I don't think so. Let's say you get that girlfriend, you get that boyfriend, it actually leads to marriage, and now you are actually happily married, but you haven't walked with Jesus in a really, really long time. Is that worth it? It is not. He said, I want you to understand what surrender means. I want you to own this. When you're going to talk to me and tell me to rescue you, I need you to understand that rescue means you don't bite me and claw me and attack me when I'm trying to rescue you. If you want me to pick you up, let go. Here's what I mean. For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it. Otherwise, when he's laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, man, I could be, that guy began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going out to encounter another king in war, will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000. And if not, well, the other is still a great way off. He sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. Man, isn't it just practical to think through whether or not you're ready for this? I understand you want all my benefits, but my benefits come with relationship. And if you don't want relationship, we're actually not able to start. It's a non-starter. So if you're going to go, yeah, 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 I'll do that whole, Jesus, I need your heaven ticket. But if you ever expect anything of me, I'm going to bail on you. That doesn't work. If you say you're lost and you need me, then you actually have to own the fact that you're lost and you need me. Okay? So I'm not telling you to do more. I'm telling you to do less. Quit jamming stuff into your life. And make no mistake, this will all come to account. For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of the Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Does he or does he not have a relationship with me? And then he says something that is kind of a side note. It almost seems like a throwaway, but it is important uh, just to explain. He said, I tell you truly, there are some standing here in my group in Caesarea Philippi, who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God, until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Now, a lot of people misunderstood that, and they thought, well, there's some guys in the 12 disciples who weren't going to die until Jesus returns again. That's not what he said. He said, there are some here that are not going to die until they see me come in my power, and they see the kingdom of God made present. Do you know what that means? It's referring to one particular account and one particular story. How do we know that? Because every time it's mentioned in the Gospels, it's followed by the same story. That is the Mount of Transfiguration. Here's what happens on that story. Jesus takes his inner three, Peter, James, and John. They were in that group. They're who he's talking about. And he takes them up on a mountain. In that mountain, I mean, on top of that mountain, a cloud comes down and actually says... From the voice of the Father, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. You need to listen to him. Elijah and Moses show up on the mountain chatting with Jesus. Jesus' clothes become dazzling white and all his power is made manifest. And the disciples are absolutely blown away. 
And then everything goes away and they walk back down the mountain. What was his point? I just pulled back the curtain kids and I just let you see who I really am. And they were like, whoa. He's like, I know. (laughs) So let's talk about this discipleship thing. Next passage. Salt is good. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's of no use either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown away. Well, sodium chloride is a stable element and it can't lose its saltiness. Okay, here's the deal. The salt in the ancient world was not pure salt. It was full of impurities. And whenever the real salt would get leached out, all you had was impurities and it was useless. What's Jesus' point? His point is simply this. You were built to have a relationship with me. And when you do not have a relationship with me, why are you here? Hey, you were built to bring about my glory in the worship of my name. And if you're not doing that, I'm sorry. What is your value? Come on. What gave you a design built within you. And when you operate outside of that identity, you're not doing what the whole point is. So I don't know what to do with you. I can't handle, I can't handle using you anywhere because you do not have a relationship with me. You are not glorifying my name. You are not living out the identity I put in you. You're playing with masks and sin and doing your own thing. I can't use you. That's tough. He who has ears, let him hear. Whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him will the son of man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and in the glory of his father and with the holy angels. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. He said, wow, you sure seem to keep me secret real well. You got to keep your little Jesus card, right? And you can put it in your pocket anytime somebody comes up and you think you're going to get some flack for it. So you can what become secret agent immediately. Right? Oh, we're going to keep it secret? All right, how about if I play that game with you? So I'm going to come back and I'm going to return in all my power and glory, coming in King of Kings written on my thigh, riding in on a white horse, got a sword in my hand, my eyes blazing like fire. Everybody that knows me and loves me and they're my kids, they're shouting and cheering for me. And I come rolling in and there you are. And I'm like, oh, we're secret. That's right. I don't know you. Is that what you want me to do? Because you're embarrassed of me. Yeah. Is that what you're telling me? You're embarrassed to know me. You're embarrassed because of my words. Why? They're the words of life. Well, nobody understands and they're going to judge me and they're going to think that I'm one of those lame Christians. Change it then. Change the reputation. You be who I made you to be. And if they got a problem with that, they got a problem with me. And that's how it has to go. I'm sorry. I'm not here to make you more popular. I'm not here to make your kingdom greater. I'm not here to make sure that everybody gives you presents and stuff just for being you. I am here to advance the will of my father through you. I want you to be salt and light. I want you to be who I made you to be. And this isn't your kingdom. It's mine. So this whole business about I'm getting in your way and I'm cramping your style is absurd. You ashamed of me? You want me to be ashamed of you? Is that what we're doing? Listen, everybody thinks, man, this is tough, this is tough stuff. You know, this Christianity thing is hard. You know, if, if I do this, Jesus, you better give me some presents. You better give me a gold star or something. I got a sticker chart. Put a sticker chart on there, right? Because dang, this is hard. Luke 17, 7 through 10, Jesus said, I got a story for you. Will any one of you who has been a servant, who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he's come in from the field, come at once and recline at the table. 
Will he not rather say to him, prepare supper for me, dress properly, serve me while I eat and drink, and afterwards you'll eat and drink? Does he thank the servant because he did what he was commanded? So you also, when you've done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We've only done what was our duty. Stop playing this game of extra credit. Oh, you served me. Oh, good for you. How about the fact that's who you are? How about the fact that that's how you're built? We're not getting extra credit about the whole thing. You know what, Jesus? Today, I did not sin. Well, goody for you. You didn't jack up your life. Well, all right then. You didn't make my life harder. That's sweet. Hey, you know what? I'm God, you're not. That makes you a servant. That means you work for me. That's what we do. We all have our roles, and your role is to serve the kingdom. And the whole thing about you're like, well, I'm off duty right now. Oh, there is no off duty. There is no what suddenly I'm your servant and you're the king. No, that's not going to happen. So let's not play this game where everything you do for God, you want extra credit for. No, you do what you do because I built you to do it. I empowered you to do it. I gave you everything to do it. I've lavished love on you to do it. I've healed your past for you to do it. I do everything for you. I set you up in the very pinnacle for success of advancing the kingdom. And then you want credit for it. I did that. It's not your credit. It's mine. I'm the one that did it. Not you. So, so stop telling me that my way is hard. You know what? Actually, my way is easy. You keep making it hard because you keep going, well, I want Jesus and the world. Well, yeah, you're right. That is hard, but that's not what I asked you to do. I'd love for you to just get rid of all that garbage and just kind of simplify out and just be with me. That would be awesome. Hmm. This is towards the last week of Jesus's life. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem And Jesus was walking ahead of them and they were amazed. Those who were following were afraid. They knew that Jerusalem doesn't take nicely to Jesus. They don't like him there. And taking the 12 disciples aside again on the way, he began to tell them what was going to happen to him, saying, see, we are going up to Jerusalem and everything that is written about the son of man by the prophets will be accomplished. In other words, the Messiah has to suffer. How do we know that? Because the prophets already said so. Think about Isaiah 52, Isaiah 53, and a bunch of them talking about that. It says, For the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death, and they'll deliver him over to the Gentiles, and he will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will crucify him. That's pretty detailed. And on the third day, he will rise, he will be raised, but they understood none of these things. The saying was hidden from them, and they didn't grasp what was said. Why would I close with that story? Because Jesus will never ask you to do something he didn't already do. He knew where he was going. He knew what was going to happen, and he didn't deviate from the plan. He said, I've asked you to live for me in the same way I live for my dad. My dad told me that I'm going to go and just get thrashed. He told me that I'm going to get 
whipped and beaten that everyone's going to misunderstand me. They're going to literally hide their kids eyes from me. I'm going to hang naked on a tree where everyone's going to say, I knew he was cursed. And then everyone religiously is going to say that I was bogus. They're all going to say, if you're really the Messiah, why don't you come down? They're all going to make fun of me. They're going to beat me on the head. They're going to damage me to the degree that it says I am marred beyond human recognition. Then, after all the physical abuse, all the emotional abuse, I will then take upon the sins of the world that my father would then bring all the wrath that belongs to all of us and have it all hurled at me to where I am destroyed for the sins of the world. Then I'm going to die and give up my spirit and I will go down and proclaim victory and then I'm going to come back up. Now, I know all that's about to happen and I'm so stressed about it that you're going to read me in the Garden of Gethsemane sweating great drops of blood. I'm literally freaking out because I don't know how to contain all of this and yet I don't deviate from the plan. So this whole thing about what you're suffering for the cause of my sake Because someone might think you're a Christian. Come on. I didn't come here to do my will. I came here to do my father's will. And in that same way, I've asked you to do my will. And I don't understand why that seems to be an issue. Have I not loved you enough? Have I not equipped you enough? Have I not directed you clearly? Have I not given you an out? Have I not told you that death can't even capture you? Have I not given my Holy Spirit to you to be your comforter, your helper, your empowerer? Have I not given you free access to talk to me in prayer? Have I not given you my word that is alive and active that transforms you every time you read it? Have I not given you everything you need for life and godliness that you may walk the road that I built you to walk? I know you don't want to. I know it's hard. Now we make it harder, but it's still hard. What I'm saying is, it's who we are. It's what we do. That's what matters. So I know I cost you everything. But what I have given you, what I will give you, what I'm all about makes this pale in comparison. I just want you to be with me. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we have certainly made it more difficult because we have competing agendas. And Lord, the reason why it's hard to pick up our tent stakes and follow you is because we cemented them in. To this world. I pray, Lord, that you would show us how to let go. That you would open our eyes to the better bread that you have for us. That you would draw us to see a greater vision of who you are and what you want. That we would be captivated by that. Lord, it's not even that you need to do more. God, you've done infinitely more. But wow, something's not right in us. We're still so resistant. 
God, in my own life, I watch it happen that no matter how long I've walked with you, there's still so much resistance. Sorry for that. And I just pray on behalf of all my friends and family sitting here with me. God, we want to move forward with you. We want to walk out our identity. We want to be like you, Jesus. So help us to be that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Have a wonderful week, and we'll see you next time.